You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. We're going to continue our time in Hebrews, and as we get started, I just want to share a short story that hopefully is helpful as we approach this text. Uh, My senior year, I went to Iowa State, my senior year of college, uh, my buddy and I, we decided that we, it was time uh, for us to prove our manhood. So we, of course, entered a marathon. Now, neither of us are runners, and neither of us have trained for a marathon, but here we are, we're college kids, it's a Des Moines marathon right next door, 2005, thousands of runners lined up for this race, and my buddy and I, again, untrained, foolish kids, we take off in a dead sprint, and we are winning the Des Moines marathon, and that first mile or two was awesome. We were, like, dousing ourselves with, like, the water cups. You know, you see in the movies or films or whatever, like, you're dousing yourselves with the water cups. We're high-fiving the crowd on the streets. We're running alongside elite runners like Gabby. Like, we're running alongside them as if we're elite runners. But as mile two turned to mile three, I turned to my buddy, and I'm like, dude, how many more miles is this thing? All that initial adrenaline, that joy, that enthusiasm was being like worn down by this realization that there's a long race still ahead. The smiles on our face were being replaced with just like grimaces of physical discomfort and pain. And at mile 10, my buddy who was in better shape, he was like Army ROTC, says, hey, you mind if I just go ahead? And so not even halfway through this race, I'm all alone. My buddies deserted me. The majority of the runners have already passed me by. Even like the little eight-year-old kids, they've all gone by me. The cheering crowds, they're gone. They've, they've left their posts. And here I am, like, shuffling my feet like a penguin, like somehow moving forward. But I still have 16 more miles to go. Have you ever felt in life it'd just be better to give up than to keep going. That the cost, the pain, the tears was just not worth enduring whatever promise was on the other side of things. You know, for for me, running alongside my good buddy at the time with like this crowd cheering me on, high-fiving, absolutely worth it to keep going. But when I found myself alone, alone on this back path of Des Moines Marathon, every muscle like screaming in pain, I began to question, is this really worth finishing? Like, what am I going to get? Like a little necklace trophy? And so at mile 18, I made it to mile 18. At mile 18, I just crumpled into the grass and I gave up. I was finished. This is a story of my own foolishness. Who doesn't train for a marathon, right? But how often in our pursuit of following Jesus are we tempted to do as I did that day in the marathon? That when the going is good, there's an enjoyable, cheering community around us. We have promotions at work. We have health. We have family. Like, of course, I'm all in with Jesus. It's good. But when the going gets tough, 
sickness or death or a child who goes wayward, financial stress, loneliness, whatever it is, we begin to question, is following Jesus, continuing to follow Jesus, is is this the best path forward? In fact, often it may feel way better to place our hope in, in something or someone rather than this unseen God and these unrealized promises that we're not experiencing in our life. I've been there at times, wondering if enduring a life of faith is worth the cost. The readers of Hebrews, as we're learning with them, as we've come to know, they're there too, questioning, wondering, as a persecuted church, facing adversity, perhaps returning to their former way of life, to Judaism. Maybe that's the better, safer, more comfortable path forward. And we'll see today as we read through our text that the ancient people of God in the time of Moses, way back, hundreds of years before the book of Hebrews, thousands of years before us, they wondered the exact same thing too. Is faith in God really worth it? Let's pray. God, we ask for your help in this moment, in these moments, to really hear from you. So, Lord, would you put to life your living word that we may be changed by it. Give us hope where we are hopeless. Give us encouragement where we need encouragement, And give us a push, a conviction where sin might be present. Lord, we ask for your help in these moments together. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible or you have a Bible on your phone, turn to Hebrews chapter 3 is where we're at. If you're new to your Bible, just keep flipping. It's one of those last pages. Hebrews chapter 3. We have Bibles in the back if you would like one. It should be on the screen as well. But as we began in chapter 3 last week, Zach uh, demonstrated to us uh, just this argument that the author of Hebrews is beginning to make, uh, that Jesus is greater than Moses. And this was not necessarily to bash Moses, to say that Moses was, was no good. In fact, it was to do the opposite. It was to contrast, in one way, it was to contrast Moses as like a servant of God to um, the faithfulness of Jesus as a son of God. A servant and a son. And as we know, if we think about it, like a servant, right, is obligated to be faithful, Otherwise, they're, they're, they're fired, dismissed, get another servant, right? But a, but a son is not obligated necessarily to faithfulness. The faithfulness of a son or a child is really just an expression of love and delight in their father. So Moses is good. We celebrate Moses, right? Moses is good, faithful as a servant, what God asked. But Jesus is greater, faithful as a son, so the, the, the author of Hebrews, the, verse, the last half of, of verse 6, we saw, he says this, And we are his house, we're God's house, meaning we're with Jesus, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Which is simply to say, Jesus, he proved his faithfulness, like see the cross, case closed. Jesus proved his faithfulness, and we demonstrate we're with Jesus by our faithfulness by our endurance in the faith if we profess with our mouth to be with Jesus if we say we're with Jesus it demands as we'll see in our text that we listen to God and respond in faith 
to God. And so today we're looking at the second of five warnings in Hebrews. The first warning we saw back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and it was a warning of don't drift away from Jesus. Don't drift with uh, whatever culture might be saying. Don't drift from the things of God, what Jesus has said. That was the first warning. And now the second warning begins here in verse 7, and it's a lengthier warning, actually extending to verse 13 of chapter 4. And it's a greater uh, warning in force, saying if you choose not to listen to Jesus, if you choose not to believe what God has already spoken, the warning is you will never find rest. You will never find rest. So as we look at our verses, verses 7 through 11, we'll see three things today. We'll see three things. One, we'll see the warning that's given. Second, we'll see an example of those who failed to see the warning. And thirdly, we'll see hope, hope to overcome. And so we have the warning, a negative example, and then hope. So first of all, the warning. And it's throughout all of these verses, 7 through 11, so we can read it together there. The author says this, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and this is interesting, right? The Holy Spirit is, 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 is uh, this is God speaking to the Hebrew church, right? But it's also God, the Holy Spirit, talking to us today, you know, centuries removed from this church. But what the author is actually going to do is recite or, or, or draw from Psalm 95, which is actually thousands of years prior, It's the same spirit. God is still speaking, right? Therefore, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what's the warning here? We can see really the verb there in verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Why? Well, verse 11. If you harden your hearts, you shall not enter my rest. It's right there. You shall not enter my rest. So hardened heart equals bad, right? We can boil it down to that. So what is it? What is a hardened heart? And we'll see it really come alive in the example that the author gives here. But you can really write this down as kind of a working definition that a hardened heart is a heart that chooses to listen and believe human voices rather than the voice of God. That a hardened heart chooses to listen and believe human voices rather than the voice of God. Of God. And so, what this warning underscores is really our utmost need in life to hear from God and to respond in faith. The author of Hebrews says, Today, today, if you hear God's voice, do something, listen, and respond. It's it's not do whatever you want today, right? Maybe tomorrow. Maybe later in the week, whenever it's more convenient, if then you hear God's voice, that might be something to consider. No, it's, it's today, if you hear God's voice, listen and respond. It's an, there's urgency in this warning, isn't there? 
There's a need in this warning to hear from God today, right now. See, if we're to remain faithful to Jesus, to to not give up in our faith, then it demands, it necessitates that we position our lives in such a way that we will hear from God, right? We position our lives where the Holy Spirit, where we know the Holy Spirit is at work and active. We want to be there, right? Because we want to hear from God. That's why on, on Sunday mornings when we gather together, we open God's word every Sunday morning and we sit under the authority of God's word. That's why when we gather in our city groups, which are our small groups, we're not in conversation talking about the latest, you know, trending Christian living book. Those aren't necessarily bad books, but we orbit our conversations about applying this word, God's word, into our lives. This is why as Christians, we read our Bibles, we study our Bibles, we listen to audio Bible on the way to work, we memorize our Bibles, we meditate on our Bibles, because we're positioning ourselves to hear God's voice, right? And so we, we ask ourselves, and we should continue to ask ourselves often, how are you strategically positioning your day to hear from God? If we're to hear from God, we have to strategically position ourselves to actually hear from God. The warning is fairly clear. It's a hardened heart. It's it's shutting God out of your life will lead one to be excluded from God's promised rest. It's simple, but it's forceful. It's vital for us in order that we stay, that we remain with Jesus to the end, to not give up on our faith. Because life, as we all know in this room, is hard. There is so much sorrow and heartache as we move through life. So when tough times come, The temptation, just as I possessed in that marathon, is just to bail, to give up. It's to question, is continuing to trust Jesus really worth it? Especially if all I've received in return is just more sorrow and more pain. You see, this is the circumstance. This is the situation, the pastoral concern of Hebrews that we find ourselves in. And we can identify with it. This was a church beginning to face adversity because of their faith. And so the pastoral concern is that they would be tempted to shut God out from their life. That they'd reject the things of God. That they would drift from the message of Jesus. And so we have this warning. That a hardened heart, shutting God out of your life, will exclude you from God's promised rest. And so to help this suffering church better understand just the totality of this really strong warning, the author of Hebrews like reaches back into Israelite history to illustrate just how easily and how quickly one may harden their heart against the things of God, even those who belong to a community of faith. 
So one, we have this warning. And secondly, we have really an example or a living illustration of a hardened heart. If you look at verse 8, you see the reference to a rebellion or, or testing in the wilderness. And this is the author of Hebrews pointing back to a very specific time or, or moment in Israel's history. The revolt of God's people in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. And I want to just go through that story a little bit to unpack it so that it becomes alive to us as well. And many of you know this, but God's people, the Israelites, at this time had been enslaved to Egypt for over 400 years. Don't miss that. 400 years. Meaning if, if we were Israelites in that time, all we would know is slavery. Your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, generational slavery. In the midst of this generational slavery, God hears his people's cry of oppression. And in an incredible display of power, God frees his people. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night lead God's people out of Egypt. And when the Egyptian army comes after in pursuit of God's people to overtake them, the pillar of cloud, what? It moves behind God's people to shield them. And as that pillar of cloud restrains the Egyptian army, God opens the waters of the Red Sea, blocking their path to freedom. God opens the path of the Red Sea, a safe passage, away from Egypt through the Red Sea to the land of promise. And when the Egyptian army pursues God's people through that same passage, right, God closes the waters back up and swallows up the Egyptian attackers. Just imagine yourself as one of God's people that day. That all you ever knew in life, all you ever knew in life was that of slavery, of sorrow, of pain. But in a blink of an eye, all of that is changed. You have radically experienced the power and mercy of God breaking Literally, your oppression, your chains of oppression, and annihilating your enemy in a blink of an eye. Like if that was you today, standing on the shores of the Red Sea, freed, what would be your response? Shout it out. What would be your response? Hallelujah. Singing, dancing, right? That's exactly what the Bible says happens. A massive celebration happens on the shores of the Red Sea. They sing to the tune of, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. It's a new beginning for the people of God. It's a new life. There is hope, hope that they may now realize the long ago promise of God to live in their own land that God has said he's going to give them, the promised land. And so the account here says, in this moment, Israel, God's people, saw the great power of the Lord and they believed. And they believed in the Lord. This is the most fantastic beginnings of faith, right? And told in dramatic flair. It begins so well, but it ends so poorly, right? Of the millions of people delivered that day 
Only two, two out of millions of people actually enter the promised land. The rest of God's people who've expressed belief in God fall as corpses in the desert. What happens? What happened? Days. If you read the account, days. It says the word days. Days after seeing God's power and safely crossing through the Red Sea, it says the people grumble. They grumble against Moses. They say, what are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? And in a wilderness of nothing, I haven't spent much time in a wilderness, but it's a wilderness of nothing. God miraculously provides. And it's not just for like me and like my wife. We're talking millions of people and livestock. In a wilderness of nothing, again and again, God provides food and water day after day. Yet as God's people, as you read through this account, as God's people journey through the wilderness, though they experience and enjoy God's power and provision in real and tangible ways as they're daily filling their bellies from bread falling from heaven, right? The narrative, if you read through it, is nothing more than just grumbling, quarreling, complaining, ingratitude, contempt, and ultimately unbelief. And finally, after two years of walking across this wilderness, the people of God, they get to the doorstep of the promised land. They are there. And God says in Numbers 13, God says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan. And check this, I bolded this because I want you to see this, which I am giving to the people of Israel. This is a direct quotation from God himself. It's not the first time he said it. He said it many times throughout their journey that I am giving this land to you. And so the mission of these spies is not to determine if they should go into the land to take the land. The mission of these spies is to gain intelligence so that they can take it. Do you hear the difference? So that they can devise strategy. Which cities have walls? Which cities are strong? Like, how are we best going to go about taking the land that God has already given to us? But as many of you know, when the spies return, 10 of the 12, when they come back, they're like, Moses, we can't go into this land. We cannot go into this land. And they say, they say, the land is a land that devours its inhabitants. There's giants there. The people are too strong. And so receiving this report, the people of God, they weep and they grumble against Moses. And they say this, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they say to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're, they're, they're making plans to, 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 to go back to Egypt here. This is the path that they're going to go. In their minds, it would be better to be a slave. Be better to be a slave than to believe God's word. 
And the unbelief of God's people in this moment, I hope this lands on you, given all that they've experienced of God is far more amazing if, than just belief itself. That they, would un, that they would have this lack of belief given all that God has done. And as a consequence of their unbelief, of their perpetual unbelief, it's here in verse 11 of our text where the author of Hebrews says, God's people are denied entry into the land of promise. They're barred from entering. And they're left wandering the wilderness for another 38 years. So what's the relationship between these very ancient historical events long ago with the adversity confronting the church, uh, the book of, of Hebrews, this church, and, and with us today? What's, what's the relationship? Well, like the people of God during Moses' time, every person who now comes to faith in Jesus has in similar ways experienced the power and mercy of God having been miraculously delivered from our bondage and oppression of sin and slavery. We may not literally feel it in the same way, like the physical sense of what they felt, but when we come to faith in Jesus in the same way we've been set free. And like God's people of old, we too are headed to a land of promise, to eternal life. And like God's people of old, we too have yet obtained the fullness of God's promise. Meaning that we, like God's people of old, are by faith holding on to the promises of God as we journey through this wilderness of our life. A life, a wilderness that is defined by hunger and thirst. A life, a wilderness that is defined by sorrow and pain. The journey, just as the ancient Israelites experienced, is hard. We experience and feel things that cause us to question God's goodness, to doubt God's promises. A.W. Pink wrote this. Testings reveal the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely. But I love this question, but are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in his temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking in dependency upon him is made evident. Testing reveals the state of our hearts. Although the ancient people of God safely stood, if we remember, on the shores of the Red Sea, like professing, remember they professed Belief in God, it did not last. Only a few days pass and we observe cracks in their faith, in their confidence of God, of their grumbling, of their complaining, of their ingratitude, of their quarreling, of their negativity, of their contempt, of their ultimately their disobedience. 
You see, we're, we're not left in the dark regarding uh, what hard-heartedness actually looks like in our lives that the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is actually warning against. We actually gain a picture. There are symptoms of a hard heart towards God. Symptoms that are such as grumbling and complaining and ingratitude and quarreling, negativity, contempt, and disobedience. And so we can hold this very practical mirror of God's word, the example of the Israelites up to our hearts, and we can look into our own hearts and see what is, what is in our heart. Do we see in our own heart a heart that looks like the people of old, a heart that is filled with perhaps ingratitude and grumbling and contempt? This is what we all need to hear right now because this is the warning. This is what we're talking about. This is what the author of Hebrews, why he's written what he or she has written. That if we see these things in our heart, we must bring it to light. We must expose it, confess it. For if we allow these things to continue in our heart, it's going to harden our faith. We're going to eventually shut God entirely out of our lives. Which is why the author says today, today, right now, in this moment where you are seated, if you hear God's voice, if God is talking to you, do not harden your heart against him. You see, this is your opportunity. This is my opportunity every day not to have our story, my story, in like the story of the Israelites. God is giving us an opportunity to repent and to believe again in who he is. So we've seen the warning. We've seen a, an example of the Israelites failing to adhere to this warning. And lastly, we see hope. Hope to overcome. In verse 10, the author says this, they, the, the ancient Israelites, they always go astray in their heart. Well, Why? Why do they always go astray? The author says, they have not known my ways. They have not known the ways of God. And this is remarkable, right? That the Israelites, after all they'd seen from God, did not know the ways of God. Like, how could they not know the ways of God? They had seen God's pillar of fire. They had seen God part this, this, this Red Sea They'd seen bread fall from heaven. They'd seen water spew from a rock. They'd seen the glory of God shake a mountain. They'd seen all these things, and yet we're told they knew not God. Like what? Right? I think what this brings to the table is just our need to be honest. Do I just desire God because of what he can do for me? Or do I desire God because of who he is? Do I desire God because of what he can do for me? Or do I desire God because of who he is? Our hope is in this, that a lasting faith 
is a faith rooted in the knowledge of who God is. In John 17, we're told this. This is eternal life, that they, what? Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What's eternal life? God's promise rests. Faith that endures is, comes through knowing God and his son, Jesus. It says it right there. This is eternal life, that you know God and Jesus Christ. If you only want the gifts of God with no interest in the actual giver, you'll never persevere. You'll never make it all the way. And we can think of our own earthly relationships as we think about this and how it would play out. I think about my own marriage to my wife. If I was only interested in the things that she gives me rather than in who she is as a person, like that's a pretty crummy marriage for her especially. And ultimately it's not going to last. In the same way, a faith that perseveres through all the ups and downs of life, through all the twists and turns is a faith rooted not just in the enjoyment of God's gifts, but in a faith rooted in the knowledge of who God is. Think about it like this. What does our grumbling and complaining, and I I do this, what does our grumbling and complaining against God, what is our heart actually saying in those moments? What What is our heart revealing in those moments? Well, ultimately, that that God's wisdom or goodness or power is not quite good enough for my circumstance, right? Like, I'm lonely. I'd love a friend. So, God, if you love me, don't you have the ability to, to give me a friend? Like, isn't that what would be best for me in this situation? Or, God, I'm stuck in my sin, like... You say you have power over sin, so why won't you free me? Like, are you not powerful enough to do so? Our grumbling, our complaining against God is just directly revealing a heart that possesses actually a very limited or poor knowledge of who God is. Because God is infinitely rich in wisdom and how he ordains our lives. God is perfect in goodness and how he provides for our lives. God possesses all power in how he guides our lives. Our grumbling, our complaining, our ingratitude, it should really alert us that we must fill our thoughts more with the knowledge of who God is. We need to hear from God in those moments. A faith that perseveres is a faith rooted in the knowledge of who God is. That is our hope to overcome. And let me close our time here together, but just by tying a a bow on the story I I shared at the outset of the marathon. And you know, if you remember, I, I was crumpled in the grass at mile 18. I was done. I'd thrown the towel in. I was given up. And as I laid there for who knows how long, I felt somebody kicking my legs. And as I was blinking my eyes trying to escape the fog of unconsciousness, I saw this older lady standing over me. And she spoke to me and said, let's get up and let's finish this. And unaware of where I'm at and who this lady is, It took a few moments of back and forth of like, what's going on here? 
But she convinced me, yeah, probably best case, I should stand up and start moving my legs. And so I staggered to my feet and began to like shuffle forward. And the more she began to encourage me and support me, we began to make just a crawl of a pace. And as we slowly worked our way in this race, she, she chose to stay by me, even though I was going like, like a baby crawl. She chose to stay by me. She encouraged me. She inspired me. She gave me helps, running advice. She cheered me on. And six painful miles later, we crossed the finish line together. But let me tell you something. If it were not for this dear older lady, I never, never, never would have finished that race. I had given up. The race was too hard. But it was this dear lady who chose to enter into my suffering. She didn't have to stop. She's, in fact, this was her, her dream. It was her 50th birthday. And her dream was to do a marathon by the age of 50. And she was doing it, yet she stops her dream to enter into my suffering. And she stayed with me through my moments of pure agony. And quite literally, by her words of comfort and encouragement, she pulled me across the finish line. Friends, like the wilderness of our lives at times can feel so dark and so defeating and so lonely. As if no one cares about who you are or what you're going through. I've felt that at times. I know some of you are feeling that very acutely right now. I just want to speak God's eternal truth over you today that the author of Hebrews helps us see that you are not alone. You're not alone. You've never been alone because the God-man, Jesus, chose voluntarily to enter into human suffering and to our suffering to enter our wilderness, to endure the same temptations of hunger and thirst of the Israelites of old and of us today. And where Israel failed in the wilderness and where you and I fail, Jesus was and is victorious. Do you see what this means? That God in his mercy has given you a friend who's right beside you who's not going to desert you, but he's right with you in the depths of whatever life circumstances you are walking through. And he's not only with you, never to desert you, he, Jesus, has gone ahead of you and has blazed a trail through this wilderness so that you can get to the land of promise. Can we make it all the way through the wilderness of life to the promised land? We will. If we, as the author pleads us to do at the outset of this chapter, that we fix our eyes on Jesus. That we focus our thoughts, that we fill our minds, that we do everything to avail ourselves, to throw ourselves upon Jesus. Let's pray. God, we praise you even in the midst of wherever life has taken us, of this understanding of your mercy and power to save, 
a people such as myself. Though we come to you and admit our own frailty, our inability to move through this life victorious, we need your help. So Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who have walked with you a long time, perhaps decades of faith. Lord, would you renew our faith in you, Jesus? May you be the center of our faith. May we fix our eyes again and again on you and that we would have the boldness and courage to confess where we fail. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who are perhaps exploring what it means even to follow you, Jesus. I pray that they would see the beauty that you have the power to unshackle whatever oppression is in their life and to bring them to safety in your arms. Lord, I pray that you would awaken them to the beauty of your gospel. Lord, I thank you for this church, a community of men and women and children who have desired to follow after you. And I pray that we would be a community that supports and encourages one another to continue in the faith. May that be the hallmark of this church. In your name we pray, amen.